Henry, hit the theme song. All right, welcome back to uh, This Is Rocket Science, the official Columbia Space Initiative podcast. I'm one of the several hosts, David Tibbetts. One of the several. Uh, my name is Henry Manowski, the other host. There's only two of us. Um, today, coming back to you with a very, very special episode. First of all, it's our first episode of the new season. Welcome back to Columbia University. Mm-hmm. It's been a whole summer. A lot of stuff has happened. A lot of stuff we'll be talking about in the near future. But on today's agenda, we got a very, very special guest. Mr. or Doctor. Is it Mr.? Mr. Mr. Chad Anderson. Oh, he might be a doctor too. He might be a doctor too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He is the CEO of the company Space Angels, which is a space hedge fund. Um, Basically, uh, they give a lot of money to a bunch of different entrepreneurial space companies in various different sectors working on satellites working on launching rockets uh we had a very fun talk we're recording this in the future um so we're going to go back to the past to listen to this interview um but we had a very fun talk uh he's met elon so we talked about that he's he's more of like a um a business finance kind of guy uh he got a, a master's an mba from oxford but he also knows a lot about space. And he's he was an investor in SpaceX from the very beginning. So he has a lot of wisdom about the space industry. Hope you enjoy the interview. All right, let's put it in right here. Hold um, on, first, before we get started, you tell sure. me, um, what is your studying at school? Uh, mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Uh, I'd love to do aerospace, but I don't have a major for it. Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to... And so what type do. of stuff are you working on? Um... Well, so I'm going into my sophomore year, so I wow. really okay. haven't done like any of the actual yeah. mechanical engineering courses, yeah. um, but like robotics, mechatronics, okay. that sort of thing. Uh, at the cool. Columbia Space Initiative, I'm building a CubeSat. You are? Uh, yeah. Cool. With, with a team of people, not just yeah. me. Um, but yeah, that's going to go up on a Falcon 9 in December. This is, their first, this is their first satellite, right? Yeah. Awesome. Um, but of course, you know, like Elon time and, and our time, like it might be April, yeah. May. Yeah. We don't actually know. Yeah. Okay. I also run the podcast. Uh, I'm the publicity director of mm. the club. So I make flyers, uh, short videos. I'm pretty well known for uh, the memes. Okay. <laughs> a very big meme presence. Okay. Um, yeah. Awesome. Shall we do it? Sure, yeah. So <laughs> like I was saying earlier, uh, yeah. I sort of allowed members to submit their own questions um so hopefully they're good questions um the first one here is uh you know i've looked at your portfolio there's lots of really cool companies i don't want to make you pick a favorite um just because that would put you in an awkward position but are there any uh, particularly promising technologies companies in your portfolio that you're looking at right now there is certainly so um we are unique in that we invest across the entire value chain in space, the entire space economy. Um, and so a lot of the, the um, people who are looking and poking around and dipping their toe into the space scene, they're really focused on the software applications of satellites. And so far, that's been actually quite boring. The applications that have, that have come about and the companies that have gotten funded and have a lot of VC funding are really kind of glorified consultancies in the sense that um, the satellite industry has been very 
sort of slow to adopt new technologies and new business models. It's been very siloed and very vertically integrated for a long time, and that's caused um, uh, really stunted any innovation and sort of uh, growth. You know, cloud computing is revolutionary for a lot of these companies. It's it's pretty crazy because we're talking about space technology, but yet, you know, very sort of um, widely adopted terrestrial technologies are still haven't made their way to space. But um, so they're, you know, a lot of these uh, larger satellite companies are really far behind in a lot of ways. And um, so some of these new companies that have come on uh, on the analytics side have raised some venture capital money and they're really just using technology to do the consulting that people have done uh, all along. And so we haven't really seen any foundational change um, until very recently. And so we've invested in the satellite hardware, certainly the different types of sensors, gathering intelligence, um, gathering data. Uh, we've invested in the ground segments that are communicating with them and bringing that data down. And we've now invested in a company that is basically an aggregation and distribution platform that sits between the supply and the demand um, and is really lowering the barriers to entry um, for new satellite providers. They're providing demand and a lot of customers. They're aggregating all of that customer demand and making it available. But they're also basically helping the market figure out what supply is needed. So in a sense, they are they removed the barriers to entry for uh, new entrants into the to the satellite value chain, and they're really opening it up. And we're starting to see a lot of like actual um, analytics uh, companies now plugging into that. And so, uh, long story short, is that we're really deep now into the satellite value chain, and that's very exciting. Kind of at the bleeding edge of that, and um, you know, kind of more big picture type thing. We've invested in um, in space manufacturing, which is uh, and commercial space stations, which is quite timely given NASA's recent announcements and uh, they're commercializing the space station. And uh, Lunar Transportation, uh, one of our portfolio companies, just won an $80 million contract, $80 million contract from NASA to deliver 14 payloads in the first steps towards their Artemis program. That's um, the Astrobotic. Astrobotic, exactly. Yeah. I, I interviewed at a competing company did you at orbit beyond oh yeah i don't know if you know yeah, yeah they want eclipse uh contract as well yeah like a 97 million dollars yeah they're based in edison so i live near there so yeah interesting yeah. and they're the consortium right so mm. um team indus is involved and some others yeah, yeah there's like honeybee robotics is yeah. working with them yeah all right so the the next question i had I, I wanted to reduce the number of questions that were only about elon there's there was like 10 all about elon okay uh, so we'll just ask one uh, okay. which is that uh, people noticed that SpaceX was in your portfolio. Yes. So have you met Elon? What do you think of his leadership style? Yeah. I'll put it that way. Tweeting habits. Um, I've met him a couple of times briefly, so but not really in um, through a space lens. Uh, so, I mean, the first time I met him was uh, in Oxford, um, he was there giving a talk at the Sheldonian Theater, and he was talking about all things that he was doing. So space is a piece of of all the projects that he's involved in. So um, I know him briefly. Um, I know Gwen and the rest of the, the team better. Um, but uh, uh, no, I mean, we're, um, uh, we've invested in SpaceX a, a few times uh, over the years, and um, it's been really interesting to see the growth of the company, the continued growth of the company. Um, they're now the, you know, one of the largest, uh, most valuable private companies in the world. And so 
um, you know, we're very happy to be involved in all the things that they're doing. Um, uh, launch is obviously, you know, uh, well understood, I think at this point, what they've done there and how they're dominating that market on the commercial side. And so I don't know that I need to go into all that. Um, Starlink is very, uh, is a very interesting business, you know, approach to their business model that's going to help them generate the revenue that they need to fund uh, the development of Starship and do the things that they want to do. In terms of his management style, um, it's hard to argue with results, you know. He surrounded himself with really smart, capable people. Um, he's got vision like not a lot of other people do, you know. He's able to paint a picture and build a vision of the future that inspires and gets people excited. You know, he's gone on stage multiple times and he's talking about the reasons why and why he's going to Mars and what the purpose is. I mean, he's saying, you know, there's a lot of things to get down on about the state of the world at the moment and, well, probably always. Um, so a future in which we are a spacefaring civilization is, is really something to be optimistic about. And um, looking at it from an investor's perspective, uh, these are exactly the types of entrepreneurs that you look for are people who um, have a big vision and um, are able to inspire uh, you know, themselves, the people around them. Um, they're able to attract the best talent to the team, to, to missions like that mission-driven founders. And when you've got you know, the world's smartest people working on a really big problem and they all feel ch challenged and are engaged and really um, working you know, with equal passion to solve this problem or to do this thing, I mean, it's pretty amazing what you can accomplish. So, hmm. that, was, that was a pretty big answer. Yeah, I remember... <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know if my um, my entire passion um, towards space began with Elon himself, but I remember seeing a TED talk that he had a few years ago where he was asked, why are you doing this? And he just responded by saying, like, why do you want to live? Why do you why do you want to like, what do you see in the future that inspires you? And that was just his entire answer, which I think was really yeah. powerful. Um, okay, the next question. So I saw in your biography that you worked at JP Morgan, yeah. right? Uh, my dad also worked at JP Morgan yeah. for a number of years. So he helped me prepare some like okay. investment type yeah. questions. Um, so what is your investment horizon at Space Angels? So when do you want to see a return on investment? Is it five years, mm -hmm. 10 years, 50 years? Yeah. So, um, we have uh, a bit of a unique business model. We have an angel fund, um, which is something of our own design. So it's an investment platform that's limited to um, a small number of accredited investors. Um, they have access to deals through this platform and they invest through us and we manage that money. And so we've got about 15 million um, under management under the angel fund. And then we have a venture capital fund in its traditional sense um, where we have another uh, 16 million under management and um, it is when I say it's a venture capital fund in the traditional sense it's a 10-year fixed life fund um, so what that means is that you know for the first four years or so we're looking to deploy that capital and then over the next six years we're looking to um, manage the portfolio and, and look for exits so the timeline um, there is very similar to other 
venture capital funds. Um, five to seven years is we're looking to make an investment and get to exit and get to some return of capital within five to seven years. So that's a big ask. Uh, particularly, it gets even bigger with hardware companies. Um, and we are early stage investors. So that means we focus on seed and series A. So often we're the first check into a company. So the company, you know, the founder has an idea, they pull together a team, um, they get some initial market traction, maybe a prototype, and then we, we cut the first check. And so we're expecting still to go from uh, investment to exit within five to seven years. And it's... Um, and it's very doable. So I think that there's a common misconception in space that, that those timelines are, are not realistic, that um, in space things take much longer. But I think when people are saying that or when people think that, it's because they're thinking about a rocket company. And if someone was to come to you with an idea for a new rocket company and they had you know a pitch deck and they said, you know invest in me and I'll go build you the best rocket there is, um, then yeah, you're pretty much in for 10 plus years and you need a few hundred million dollars uh, at least of investment to get there. But they're not all rocket companies. Um, and uh, space is very, uh, it's a horizontal and it's very diverse. So uh, you've got hardware, you've got software, you've got rockets and satellites, you know, lunar transportation, that sort of thing. So even our lunar transportation company, I mean, if you think about it, um, we made our investment um, a few years ago now, and they're going to launch uh, to the moon in 2021, so in two years from now. So basically from investment, seed investment, to uh, launch to the lunar surface is going to be five years. And um, we'll see what happens, but um, I would imagine they'd be a pretty attractive acquisition target uh, even after mission one. So... The Angel Fund um, uh, is very similar, and it looks for opportunities in a very similar type of timeline. But we do have a bit more flexibility there, and uh, we do invest in some longer-term uh, investment opportunities. So that's where we would have invested in SpaceX and some other things um, where the timeline is less certain. So I guess another area where the timeline is less certain is space mining. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of, I guess, investment and news about ISRU technologies. When do you see space mining significantly disrupting mining on Earth? When do you, do you see it happening at all? Definitely. Um, I mean, it's part of our space future at some point. Investing is all about uh, timing, in my opinion. It's, um, uh, there's lots of good ideas um, that are too early or too late. It's about... Um, having the right idea at the right time. We've had a couple of privately funded asteroid mining companies that have come and gone. And it's really easy to point and say, you know, that these are way ahead of their time or just doesn't make sense yet or there's no market there. But if you look at SpaceX, I mean, um, SpaceX is planning to go to Mars. That's a very long-term goal, um, a very ambitious goal. Um, there's no real market there to support that, but yet they're able to pull it off, right? Um, in space manufacturing, 3D printing in space, this is a very long-term market. We're talking about um, printing parts, tools, um, satellite structures eventually, um, entire stations, uh, modules, right? I mean, this is a really big, ambitious bold vision for the future um, yet made in space is able to 
um, make money and, you know, build towards this big vision, right? So there's certainly ways to make it happen. Um, and I think that there were, there were a couple of, there were some potential routes in which um, the previous companies probably could have uh, made it work there as well. Um, but when is their, you know, their penultimate vision going to be necessary, the, the market there to support it? Don't know. Depends on how quickly a lot of these other things um, come about. It's difficult to, you know, to be one of these companies and to, to get to convince people to invest in you because you're basically compounding your risk. Um, because it's not just, you know, the riskiness of the business you're investing in, but the whole ecosystem around it is also developing and it's venture funded and those need to succeed as well. So, um, you know, it's like risk squared or risk cubed. It's it, it gets really risky really quick. So I don't know. I mean, you'd be hard pressed if you talk to any of these people that are doing these sort of out there type uh, things, um, the SpaceX's and the other launch providers and the people who are doing um, big things in geostationary orbit and things. I think you'll find that people want this resource. People are people want propellant depots in space. There's a lot of benefit to that. But we're going to need um, the right entrepreneurs, I think, with the right vision and, and with the resourcefulness to be able to pull it together. So you think it's probably a little bit further off than, say, Starlink, like those type systems? Well, Starlink has there's customers for it today, right? So if they build it and it gives greater access, it gives the existing terrestrial telcos um, access to new customers, like all of that exists today. You don't have to convince anybody that there's going to be somebody that's going to pay for it. In space, there's it's really difficult to quantify the demand for it at the moment. ULA sort of came out and said that they would be really interested in, in purchasing fuel in orbit, and they even threw out a price at which they were they would be willing to pay. Um, but there's not a lot of data points there. So these existing markets that are being disrupted or augmented are going to be um, are going to develop much quicker. This is dependent on you know asteroid mining and in in space resources is um, dependent on a few other things developing. But I would say that when you talk about the moon and so that's starting to develop because um, there is commercial traction there and now NASA is going in big and putting real money behind these companies and partnering with commercial companies which in turn is giving them more credibility to some of these other commercial customers that are now going to put in additional money, right? So this ball is already sort of rolling. And if you talk to these companies and the purpose of what they're doing, I mean, and NASA's big vision to set up an outpost on the moon, what they're looking for is they're, they're looking for the best place to set that up. Um, they want it to be in a place where uh, there's sunlight to help power what you know um, uh, their equipment, and they also want it to be close to water so that they can mine it, pull it out of the ground, pull it out of the regolith. Still have some work to do there, but to do that and then split the uh, hydrogen and oxygen, right? So, in terms, of, you know, you started the question with I ISRU, and um, I think. You know, we're well on our way there using um, resources in space. I think that's a key thing that we're looking to accomplish when we go to the moon. Um, doing it in orbit, you know, is going to be some point after that. And the moon looks like it's five years. So I don't know if that's 10 years or what it is, but um, at some point in the future. Speaking about the moon, though, what do you think about the recent Trump tweet um, 
which essentially said NASA shouldn't be looking at the moon at all, even though that was his previous administration's position, and instead we should go directly to Mars. What do you think about what do you think about the sort of conflict that's I think arisen between Pence, Trump over essentially just the Artemis program? Yeah. It's difficult to comment on the politics of this, particularly with the actors that are involved. It's, you know, I'm not going to try and get into anyone's head and understand the reasoning for why these things happen, but um, it's unfortunate. Um, I mean, uh, it's this administration's plan. So um, uh, it's certainly, you know, and there was still a lot of work to be done. Um, there's still money to be, um, they, NASA still needs money if they're going to pull this off. And so, um, they need congressional support and, you know, this, these contradictory statements don't do anything to help, you know, win over any, uh, Congress people that are on the fence. So yeah, it makes things a little bit, um, uh, more difficult, I think. Uh, but you know, um, the official statement from uh, the White House and what NASA is saying is, you know, that they're they're that this is a confirmation of their plans and what they were trying to do, and that the moon is a stepping stone to get to Mars. Um, so I don't know. I mean, they still got a staunch supporter in Pence, so we'll see. Bridenstine's doing some good work in terms of um, drumming up support, although this is a big ask. So we'll see. Yeah, they've already put what was that? One point six billion was last month just into SLS alone. And then they swore. Well, the 1.6 was for a few things. I think half of it went to SLS. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that money probably could have been better spent. I think they asked, you know, they said, we need $600 million and what's it for? And they said, well, you know, to speed up the timeline. And they said, no, but actually, like, what are you actually going to use these dollars for? And there wasn't much of an answer. So that's unfortunate. Um, What's promising to me is NASA's willingness to work with some of these other new um, partners. And again, like the politics of this is very difficult. And I think the administrator and his team are doing a really good job of sort of balancing all these competing interests. What's really promising to me is that they're they're basically uh, essentially taking the COTS framework, the commercial crew and commercial cargo programs, and the success of those. And they're really applying those now to other programs like the Commercial Lunar Payload Services program that we were just talking about. It looks like they're going to be applying this to the Artemis program and their human uh, rated landers as well. So the more that they can partner with these uh, commercial providers, the more apparent the, the discrepancy, the difference is going to become. It's it's still just coming out. The, the COTS program, commercial cargo, is really essentially the program that helped SpaceX come about. And we're just starting to see like the rubber starting to meet the road where we're we're understanding just how stark those differences are, right? Like SpaceX is able to make progress. You know, they were ahead. Um, they have hit a setback, but they're still on par with Boeing, who's, you know, supposedly like the safe uh, bet here, right? Um, their timeline, they're keeping up with it or doing better. And they're doing it at, at like incredibly less cost, uh, right? The latest report was that um, NASA's paying Boeing $71 million per seat to get the space station. They're paying SpaceX $44 million, right? And you see this play out again and again in all these contracts that they're winning. They're winning them at like a third, you know, or half or, or something, you know, much, much 
discounted to to the other providers. So we're starting to see like these cost savings come about. We're starting to see like the stark contrast between like a private uh, partner like SpaceX and SLS. They're able to you know they built the Falcon Nine for what like five billion. Um, SLS cost thirty billion. Um, and it hasn't even flown. Once. It hasn't even flown. Probably is it ever fly going to like fly? And even if it does get flying, the plan is for it to like fly twice a year or something, right? So I think that. Like there's been a, a a chink in the armor now. Like there's been a the the COTS was the crack that allowed SpaceX in and like shine light in this dark little corner that was the defense uh, space market. And now that we're starting to see, you know, we've got two options, and you know the choice is really clear. And so it's great to see NASA pursuing that and working with these new new entrants. Yeah, I think that all really started with them just publishing their prices because mm. then you. I think, I don't know when that was, probably like 2011 when they yeah. did that first, but just comparing ULA and SpaceX, it's kind of ridiculous that there's even like this whole contract bidding system. Just give it to SpaceX. <laughs> um, well, you always, need two, you always need two providers, right? Yeah. And NASA's always going to need two providers, but that's your two choices. You know, you've got one choice that's great performance and low cost, and then your next choice is, you know, perfect performance at, a, you know, twice the cost, so... Just is what it is. So sort of switching gears. So you started your career in finance mm. and made this transition. You're still in finance, obviously, um, but running a space hedge fund. What did you have to do to sort of educate yourself about space? I know uh, that Elon said in one of his TED Talks what he did is just spend months with books, textbooks for aerospace engineering, reading up, talking to smart people. Did you take a similar route or something different? Yeah, it's a similar similar thing. Um, yeah, I'm a finance and economics undergrad and I have an MBA, so um, business background. Um, I've been an entrepreneur a few times. And uh, as you mentioned, I worked at a bank for a handful of years uh, through the Great Recession. So um, yeah, lots of business experience. It was, um, for me, space was like it never even crossed my mind that there was ever a career opportunity here. Um, I was just following what was happening in the news, you know, um, having, you know, some sci you know, I was interested in sci-fi. I grew up with sci-fi and, you know, I've always kind of like looked up and been inspired by space as I think a lot of people have been. Um, I was paying attention to what was happening with SpaceX and the private, you know, the, the push for privatization of space. And it was really um, interesting for me to see, you know, their first launch, for me to, to follow them as they began launching more and more. It was really exciting. And then when I was in business school, this was the year that they first um, launched and birthed with the International Space Station and then safely brought the Dragon capsule back down to Earth. And um, this was the first time, you know, there was like three entities that had ever done that. And they were all superpower governments, right? Russia, U.S., China. And so it was a big deal. There was a private company doing this now. And um, so anyway, it was just sort of, this was the first time in my life that I also had a year um, where I was just doing, you know, business school full time. And I had time, like I went there in order to pursue a career with more impact and do something that was more meaningfully, meaningful to me personally. Um, and so it was kind of like right place at the right time, I guess. Um, I started getting, you know, I just made the decision to go all in on space and, um, I basically was talking to, you know, having some informational interviews with some people who had made some investments. There wasn't a whole lot going on back then, but had made some investments or were involved on, you know, sort of the business side. 
and I was like just asking, you know, um, is there a place in space for someone like me with a business background? Because everyone I talk to that's, you know, in this field has a STEM education, STEM background. And the resounding answer that I got back was, you know, yes, without a doubt, the, you know, it's starting to grow. The space economy is starting to grow and we don't have any business people to like help it grow. So I was like, okay, so there's this place for someone like me. And then um, the next question was, you know, where do I fit and where can I add value? And I just, I started diving into the data and trying to understand what was happening and where money was going and, you know, what was getting funded and kind of trying to understand the value chain and what comes next. And I was just recognizing that there was a lot of new companies that were popping up and there was, you know, and they needed funding and like, how are they going to get that? And who understood this? And there was just nobody really doing that. And I always um, have been really comfortable in early stage. Um, I, I appreciate the chaos and like, you know, the unstructured nature of it all. So I really thrive there. I understand the financing. And so for me, it was sort of like, it was obvious. Um, and then from there, it was just basically like hustling and trying to build a fund based on a new fund manager based on um, a nascent market that seemed crazy to most people. And then yeah. So, um, yeah. So basically building up my, my space knowledge was, um, yeah, in terms of understanding the technology and things, I mean, lots of business plan review, um, but basically just self-educating myself. How many hours does it take to be an expert in something? 10,000, right? Mm -hmm. Well, um, you know, seven years of two full-time jobs in space, essentially like being an entrepreneur in space. I feel like I crossed that threshold a while ago, but um no, and a lot of it is um, I was digging up information that just no one else that just didn't exist, right? Like when um, I got involved with Astrobotic really early on and like no one had thought about the lunar market. Um, what was the commercial market for lunar transportation and services? <laughs> what did it look like? And like how big could it be? Don't know. Let's find out. Seems interesting. You know, there's companies that are doing this uh, it's a worthwhile you know it's not like just an academic exercise like these companies need this uh just in terms of convincing myself that there was an opportunity here um i needed to go and you know i started pulling data together and um on investments and like you know what companies were getting what and that's when i recognized that like something had happened in 2009 that this was really meaningful you know milestone for the for for space generally and that like something had happened, the barriers to entry had come down and like I was starting to see, you know, these trends, like these hockey stick trends of the numbers of companies, the number of investors, the amount of funding. And so that was really exciting to me. And then so I took that data, I convinced myself with that data and then I used that data to then convince others that like, hey, there's something happening here. Like we should be paying attention. And, you know, I mean, looking back now, you can sort of see, I mean, it's all it's all continued and it shows no signs of slowing down. But. And now I feel like space is cool again. I don't know. I, like I, I'm sort of, I'm old enough to remember the uh, the sort of lull that accompanied the end of the space shuttle era. Okay. And I remember how not many people seemed interested in space. And now I feel like every movie is about space, and like there's big movies. There's I saw that um some trailer for a Brad Pitt movie. Yeah. Now coming out with yeah. Just, I feel like every week there's some new development. Ryan Gosling, Brad Pitt. Yeah. Who else we got? Oh, we had um, <laughs> Interstellar, Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. 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 Right. Oh, Matt Damon, of course. Matt Damon's done a couple, I think. Yeah, yeah, he did Interstellar. Yeah. Yeah. 
The Martian, yeah. Sandra Bullock. Keep going. What else we got? George Clooney. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so just today, the House voted to create the Space Corps. Oh yeah. I guess they're they're naming it that because they just didn't like the Space Force idea that Trump had. But I don't know. Um, do you think creating a branch of the military like the Space Force, the Space Corps, is a good idea? Hmm. Um, I've seen people like Neil deGrasse Tyson defend it and say it's great. Um, whereas I feel like a lot of other people in space are sort of wary of, you know, the militarization of low Earth orbit, essentially, is what we're looking at. Yeah, I see different sides of this argument. The big one is, so this has been a thing for a long time, whether it's a space force, a space command, or a space corps. And it's like varying levels of military engagement and involvement in space. Both sides of the partisanship have pushed this for decades. It's an interesting question. I mean, um, I don't really follow or get on board with the fear mongering. That's not a realistic view of the world. Uh, but I do think that there is, it is important to protect our assets. And I mean, so here's my, here's my point of view, I guess, is that um, space has been, because the barriers to entry to space have been high for so long, 50, 60 years of, of technology development funded by the government. Um, a lot of really important intelligence comes from space. Um, space has enabled our modern global economy, right? GPS is the great example of this. I also saw today that like a day without JP GPS would cost the U.S. a billion dollars, a billion dollars a day. It gets much, much worse than that. If you actually think about, you know, how ingrained it's become in our everyday lives, it's what enables like so many of our of our industries it is what uh we take for granted now that it gives us precision timing which enables you know our global markets our global financial markets our shipping lanes um our airline flights you know stoplights even apparently i was reading it's somehow have to do with gps it's only getting more and more ingrained i mean think about autonomous cars and where we're going um so it's a really really um important aspect of our lives that i think we take for granted we don't give it a lot of credit uh, at least not the credit that it's due. And um, so as, you know, more of our economy is reliant on space, um, it's, in, you know, it's really important for us to protect it in the same way that, you know, we protect our seas with our Navy, that we protect our, you know, land assets with our army. And so we've kind of gotten complacent in that there was only ever two or three players in space for decades Right. And so there was always this sort of like it was so difficult to get into space. You didn't really have to worry about anyone sneaking up on you. You knew who was launching. You knew when they were launching and everyone had intelligence, you know, on what was happening. And so you knew what was going on and you could like you could sit down with whoever and have a conversation if things got heated or or not. Right. It was very like two or if there's two or three parties involved, you can handle it in a certain way. Then all of a sudden in 2009, when SpaceX like broke into the space economy and really um, brought those barriers to entry down, I think that it just caught everyone completely off guard, right? No one saw this coming, um, particularly on um, the agency side and from a sovereign nation perspective. And so um, all of a sudden you've got, you know, commercial access to space and like it's plentiful and it's readily available and um, you can do it 
really quickly and cheaply and easily relative to what had happened before. So now all of a sudden, um, we are flying um, small satellites from all kinds of different um, countries and all kinds of different um, entities, commercial, private, public, you name it. We're now like we, we get to a point where actually um, the regulations and everything is like really struggling to keep up. And we've actually got satellites launching without licenses, you know, and and people trying to figure out for the first time, what do we do? How did that happen? You know, and um, so the world is just like, you know, it's gone a certain way for decades and people got really complacent. And I think that, um, you know, this barriers to entry came down and the world is just a much, much different place very, very suddenly, um, especially on timescales from a government's perspective. So um, I feel like we have some catching up to do in terms of protecting our assets. And, um, you know, it was famously like, I don't know, just a few years ago or something where um, we wanted to test the resiliency and the security of satellites in orbit. And I forget which company it was. I forget. It was one of the big satellite providers. And they, they basically hosted a hackathon and had some hackers come in and, and try, I think it was Iridium and try to get access to their satellites. And then the, the, the young people that hacked that came out of it and said, it's not that the satellites have bad security. It's that they have no security. Right. And so if there's no, if there's nobody in orbit and you know, you're the only one there or you know, the other people who are there, you, you know, you, you take kind of a laissez faire approach to to securing your assets that that can't happen anymore just like it can't happen on you know um on earth so i think that we have a lot to do in terms of protecting um, our assets space is strategic national infrastructure for any developed country and every developed country should and has a responsibility to protect that there is a line at which though um we probably don't need to go and that's that's the part that i probably am not going to get into now but yeah usually my last interview question is if you had any advice for young people college students who are looking to get into space um but if you don't have enough time i know it's, it's basically four no no um let's do it this is an important question so um, we've come out with a couple of talent reports to basically help explain, help make it more real, the opportunities in space, because you sort of, you look at it and you say, you know, that, uh, you have like this preconceived notion of what it is and that it's rocket science and it's, and it's, you know, really difficult to get involved, but space is, is grown so quickly. You know, again, as we've talked about multiple times in this podcast is that, <clears throat> We're in a different place now. You don't have to be a propulsion engineer to get a job in space, right? You can be you can be a propulsion engineer, and we need those. We need many more of those. So if you're thinking about that, then you should, you know, definitely pursue that. But you can be all kinds of things. You can you can be any of the of the traditional STEM types of backgrounds, but you can also be a business person, you know, in in all facets. So not just the investment side, but like these companies need a lot of help on the marketing side, the branding side. Um, design thinking. We've got a lot of more creative people getting involved in space and like helping these companies um, in terms of their brand and strategy. And so I think that there is a ton of opportunity for anyone of any background. Um, I am a perfect example of that. There's lots of jobs that are opening up and, and, and that, you know, you can go and find a job posting for them. Equally though, in a nascent market like this, um, where things are still really dynamic and developing. There's a lot of opportunities for you to identify an opportunity that nobody's doing and start something yourself. Um, I would definitely encourage that as well. No, I mean, I would just say that, you know, it's probably a lot more accessible than you think it is. Our space future is a lot closer than a lot of people think it is. 
again, I mean, we're launching to the moon in two years, right? So all this is happening really quickly. Um, there's never been a better time to do it. And so if you've ever had an interest in it, the biggest challenge is just making up your mind to do it. That's what holds so many people back in so many things in life, um, particularly entrepreneurship. The hardest part is just making the commitment and deciding that you want to do it. And then once you do, I mean, I think you'd be surprised at what you're capable of. This is Rocket Science is the Columbia Space Initiative podcast produced by Henry Manelski and David Tibbetts. Executive producers, Natasha Dada and Luke DeCruz. PR director is Anthony Odessa. Consultant is Logan Tedder. Audio is mixed by Michael Weiss. Edited by Kate Steiner. That's all, folks. Do 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 do